If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke 24, though we really won't be spending a whole lot of time there until um, like the last part of the sermon. <clears throat> but we will get there eventually. Today, uh, well, just really all week, I've been working hard on our Christmas Eve uh, service. It's going to be different than what we've done in the past and really looking forward to it. Just basically going to narrate the Christmas story and we'll have a bunch of songs through there. We'll still have people come and read some scripture. Um, I'm going to have a monologue from um, kind of the, the standpoint of Mary. Um, we'll have a solo as well, so I'm really looking forward to it. It should be a good good day. I, I'm really excited about it. I think you're, you're going to be blessed by it as well. So be here 4 o'clock Christmas Eve. Bring friends with you. Bring family with you. should be a really, really good time. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, but today is our penultimate sermon in our super long series through Luke. So just one more to go. Way to go, church. You've hung in there. I'm proud of you. Seriously, next week that'll be sermon number 70 in this series. And so we've been at it for the better part of, um, really it's two years because we've had all these breaks in there. But today's the penultimate one. And what I want to do today is really kind of bounce out of Luke 24. We're, we're at Luke 24, but I want to kind of bounce out of it and, and talk about a topic um, that I think there's some confusion on. And it's a topic that's connected to uh, Luke chapter 24 because in Luke 24, what's happened is Jesus has resurrected. Okay, so he's got a physical body. This is not is not a spirit. He has a physical body. His heart is pumping blood. His kidneys are cleaning. His stomach is digesting. He's eating food. He can be seen. He can be touched. He can talk. He is a physical resurrection. He's alive. Okay, his body was dead. It is now alive and it is functioning. And so we're going to see that, but we also, as we'll get into it, we'll see that he's got a couple of qualities that are a little bit different than the bodies that you and I have now and the body that he had prior to his resurrection. There's a little bit different, and that's he's been glorified, or his body's been resurrected and it's been glorified, just as the Bible teaches that all believers in Jesus their body someday will be resurrected and glorified. And Jesus is the first fruits of this. And so this is the theological idea of glorification. I put a definition down in your notes where it's just where our bodies are resurrected and they are glorified. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to build to that. All right. I want to build up to to that and talk a little bit about that and look at even from Jesus's resurrected, glorified body, what we can kind of learn about ours as well as what other portions of Scripture says about that. What, what are these glorified, resurrected bodies that we're going to have someday? What are they like? What does that mean? And so I want to build to that, but we got to, in order to build to that, we need to kind of get, go back and get our arms just kind of around the whole idea of, of heaven. Right? What it is. Uh, what it's, you know, what it's going to be like, what it is right now, what it's going to be like someday. Because all of this stuff about glorified bodies, all of that is future. All right? It's going to happen when Christ returns. It's future glory. But what about right now? Like if I died right now, what would happen? If my body is going to be resurrected someday, then what happens between now and that day. And so we're going to be talking about that as well with my hope and my prayer being that this would 
kind of clean up and bring some clarity to some areas where I think there's a little bit of confusion, at least that I see posted on Facebook or whispered to people at funerals about the nature and the timeline of heaven and our glorified resurrected bodies that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. So hopefully today it won't just be informational. I know it's going to be a little heavy on that side. Hopefully though, it'll be somewhat transformational as we better understand the hope of heaven and future glory. And so to get us started, though, I've really got to kind of lay some groundwork and I need to help us understand how heaven kind of fits into the overall like grand narrative of Scripture, the, the, the overarching story of the Bible, the overarching one story that all of these smaller stories go together to, to tell, this one overarching story of the Bible. So how does heaven fit into that? Well, it fits into that because heaven is not just like some sort of tacked on extra to the gospel, but rather it's the vision towards which all of Scripture is pointing with Jesus at the center. Okay, because the, the the story of the Bible, this grand overarching story, is not like Western, um, just you know, linear plot where it's beginning, middle, end. The story of Scripture is beginning, middle, new beginning. That's the way the Scripture. So, so if we want to put a little more detail on that, you can think of it as four acts: creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you've been a part of Providence for any length of time. We've talked about this, but and we constantly have to because we've got to put ourselves into where are we in this story that God's rolling out. And so four acts over the overall story of the Bible, the story of reality. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so creation. In the beginning, there was a God. He was eternal. He was self-existent. And he decided, I'm going to create a universe. And he decided, I'm going to create all these galaxies. And one of them called the Milky Way, I'm going to make a planet called Earth. It's at 23 degrees. It's a certain 93 million miles from the sun, so we don't burn up. And I'm going to put people there. And they're going to be in my image. And so he created. That's Genesis 1 and 2. You turn the page to Genesis 3 and we get what's called the fall. The fall of man. And this is where sin enters the world. And Adam and Eve believed the lie of the devil that they would make a better God for themselves than God does. Same lie that we believe. And we make a better God for ourselves than God actually does. So we'll play by our rules. They believed that lie and sin entered in the world and it fractured everything. It broke everything. So wickedness and disease and death and injustice, and natural disasters. All of this came into the world as a result of sin. As a result, like this, this fracturing. And so now people are broken. The earth itself is broken. That's Genesis 3. And then almost the whole rest of the Bible is about redemption. How God is redeeming this broken world back to Himself through Christ, because He alone can reconcile us back to God. Nothing else can, nothing else will work. And so my friends in here who are just kind of exploring Christianity, make sure that you understand that as Christians, we believe that our only hope at being made right before the God of the universe is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, where He takes our sins and our wickedness and our evil, He takes it away pays for it on the cross and He gives to us His righteousness, His perfection, so that we can stand clean before the God of the universe 
not on the basis of what we do, because we blow it, but on the basis of what He does. And only on the basis of what He does. And so that's why, though Christians blow it all the time, we really should never walk with any swagger, with any arrogance. We should be the most humble people on the planet because we didn't do anything. It was a gift. We just received it. So we repent, we believe the gospel. It's good news of life, death, resurrection of Jesus. So you've got creation, you've got fall, you've got redemption. That's the whole Bible that God's working out, redemption. And then Act 4, and it's talked about a little bit in Scripture. But it's still to come. Act 4 is this restoration. This coming restoration because Jesus is into full redemption. Because the whole earth has been cursed. Right? Under the weight of sin. But Jesus is coming to restore everything. To fix everything that's gone wrong and bring it back. You know, His creation was good. Sin broke that. And He's coming to restore that good creation. To bring that back. To reconcile that back. And bring everything back to really an Edenic state. A return to Eden. <clears throat> where people will enjoy full life in body and in spirit in a world where there is no pain and there is no sorrow and there is no sin and there is no death and there is no destruction there is no suffering there is no natural disasters there is no more tears and where we will see the face of Jesus and be with Him in a perfect city on a restored earth for all time this is Revelation 21 and so as one theology professor put it the picture then is not of an end times flight from creation, but the restoration and redemption of creation with all that entails. Table fellowship, community, culture, economics, agriculture and livestock management, art, architecture, work, worship, in short, life, and that abundantly. All right. And so heaven is not some bleached, antiseptic, hyper spiritual place that some Christians expect as their eternal home, nor is it simply an everlasting family reunion with calorie free food and superpowers as some hope. In its fullness, hang on to that fullness, in its fullness, heaven is a restoration of God's original creation. In its fullness. And that's coming. That's not here yet. And so when we die, it's not like we jump into a spiritual DeLorean and adjust the flux capacitor and jump forward to that moment. Alright? Nor is it like having some, becoming spiritual grizzly bears and we go into some sort of spiritual hibernation or soul sleep until that day. 2 Corinthians 5.8, y'all, many of you will know this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so if I drop dead today as a believer in Jesus, listen closely, I will go to heaven. But it's not the coming restoration. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't happen till Jesus returns. All right? It's going to happen, but it hadn't happened yet. But it still is heaven. Or maybe a little more accurately, the way Jesus described it, paradise. 
Theologians call it the intermediate state. And so write that down. That is an important word for your spiritual vernacular, your vocabulary. Intermediate state. The way I like to explain it, though, is not with that word. If you want to take notes, here's what you can put down for number one. Heaven today is heaven, but it's not the fullness of heaven. All right. Heaven today is heaven, but it's not the fullness of heaven. You could write heaven is the intermediate state. Heaven today is the intermediate state. But I don't want to give the connotation. This is just some sort of holding tank because it's heaven. You're with Christ. At least your soul is. And so it's not the fullness of heaven. It is heaven, but it's not the fullness. It's temporary. It's temporary. But nevertheless, it is heaven. You go, you die, as a believer in Jesus, you will be with Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Second Corinthians 5.8, we just quoted it. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, surely Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so again, there's no gap. And so like all believers from all time. So if Adam and Eve uh, repented of their sin and, and, and trusted in the promise that God had given to them, the, what's called the first God, the Proto-Euangelion in Genesis 3, if they trusted in Christ, in the promises that God had made to them, repented and believed and became saved, if that happened, then they're there. Abraham is there. Moses is there. David is there. Isaiah is there. Malachi is there. John the Baptist is there. On and on and on we could go. Coming a little more closer to home for me. My mamaw's there. My papaw's there. My daddy Sidney's there. My mama Ruth's there. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so again, this rules out soul sleep. This rules out purgatory. Jesus saying to the thief, you're going to be with me in paradise Today. And so just real practical for a minute as we're talking, because to talk about heaven presupposes death. Because we're all going to die. But believers, we have no reason to fear death. At, at that instant, okay? Listen to me real close, which is a temporary cessation of life in this body. That instant, you're with Christ. There's no gap. There's no time. There's no what's going to happen. It's like you blink. You're with Christ. Nothing can separate us from, from His love. This is the testimony of Romans 8. Not even death. And in fact, one of the reasons that Jesus even died for us was to set us free from the slavery of fear to death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It's Christmas time. He became a human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We have no reason to fear. Don't be a slave to the fear of death. Jesus will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. We sing that all the time. 
And so before Christ returns, all believers who die will be with God in heaven, in this intermediate state. But this is, again, there's several thinking things we've got to put our, really think through this morning. This is crucial to understand. When we talk about being with God in heaven, it's just our soul that we're talking about. It is our soul that will be there. Alright, so if we died and go to heaven, we're going to be absent from the body. The body stays, goes in the ground. Our soul goes to heaven. Alright, our soul will be there. And so we would be with Christ in a conscious, disembodied state. Because that's what death is. It's the separation of soul and body. So let's think about this for a minute. Use your brain here and think about how God made humans. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, God created humans as thinking, feeling, and moral creatures right? that are made up of, of spirit or soul, whatever word you want to use, interchangeable, and body. All right, So body and soul, this is what it means to be human. Both of those. Tightly joined together. And one is not better than the other. To think that the soul is more important than the body is actually a Gnostic thought that believes that the immaterial is better than the material. That is, that non-physical is better than physical. That's a Gnostic thought. It's not a thought of Scripture. Scripture says, body and soul, God made us, and they are both important. He put as much thought into making your body as He did your soul. And so it is imperative that we care for our bodies and show them respect both in life and in how we treat them when we die. And so your body is not just a shell. It's not just a shell. God made it. What you are, who you are, is body and soul. Some people will talk about, well, my soul is the real me. No, the real you is body and soul. That's what it means to be a human. God created us with a body. He created us with a soul. And death is tearing those two apart. It's splitting them. That's what death is. One guy said, it defiles humanity, speaking of death, of the dignity that God created us to have in body and soul. And so it's basically trying to, think with me, uncreate us. So if we're created with body and soul and death splits that, it's trying to almost uncreate us. It is an enemy. That's why it's called an enemy. It is trying to undo what God has done. Body and soul is going to tear those apart. And so uh, my, my papa, amazing guy. I didn't know him that long. He, only, he, he died when I was 12. Um, but amazing guy, he served as a cook uh, on a ship at the very end of World War II, um, turned down a baseball scholarship to the University of Tennessee to get married, and he tried to play semi-pro ball. That didn't work out. He had no money, and so he and my mamaw were living in a one-room house cooking on just basically a Bunsen burner. That's it. And so he got a job shoveling cotton cellulose at a plant in Chattanooga. And over the decades of just grit and hard work, he wound up selling that company in 1989 because he had become the president and co-owner of it. An amazing guy. But a couple years later, he died only two or three years later. He had diabetes. And uh, in the process of 
fighting that disease, he wound up having both of his legs amputated. And so you've got this just great athlete, ridiculous golfer, um, amputated legs, all right? And when he died, because of his faith in Christ, he went to heaven. His soul, all right? But in this disembodied, unearthly abode, while absolutely heaven, you're with Christ. That's what makes heaven heaven. It's Jesus. While absolutely wonderful, it's still not the final restoration. He's not been restored yet. He will be, just as all of us who believe in Jesus will be. We will be made human again. Body and soul coming back together. Our bodies being resurrected and reunited with our souls. But that doesn't happen until Christ returns. And so that's why it's biblically inaccurate for me to say something like, well, Papa's got his new legs. Because he doesn't have any legs. Not just because he's got him amputated because he doesn't have a body. It's just his soul that's there. He will have perfect legs someday. But that's not yet. He hasn't been resurrected. That's coming though. And it's coming when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, it's going to change everything. That's when heaven in its fullness comes. This is Revelation 21. New heavens, new earth, no more sin, no more sickness, no more disease, no more disability, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. All that stuff is gone. The earth is renewed. And this there's this glorious and simultaneous explosion of cemeteries all over the world where souls and bodies are being reunited. And out of the ocean and wherever bodies are resurrected, put back together, reunited with their soul. And God is putting back together his image bearers to be who he created us to be as humans, body and soul. And so, number one, we talked about heaven today is heaven, but it's not the fullness of heaven. Okay, it's temporary. But the fullness of heaven, the eternal state, begins when Christ returns and makes sin and death extinct. And so, again, number one, heaven today is heaven, but it's not the fullness of heaven. Number two, heaven in its fullness, okay, the eternal state is the coming restoration. Heaven in its fullness is the coming restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the ultimate heaven. That's the eternal state. Quint Patronella puts it like this. This is the fullness of redemption. We were made human with a body. And in the future eternal state, we will continue to be human with bodies. We will be the image bearers we were created to be. There will be no more possibility for sin and no more death. And our humanity will be what it was created to be. What death tried to uncreate, God will recreate. And so redemption is not a deliverance from the material world, but the reestablishment and sanctification of it. And so that brings us back to Luke 24. It's the idea of glorification with Jesus' resurrected and glorified body being the first fruits of what ours will be like someday. 
And so after the world's longest introduction ever, let's look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to read a little bit here and note a few things, and then we're going to flip over to 1 Corinthians and read and note a few things. Um, and then we'll, then we'll be done. So Luke 24, this is on page 885 in the Bibles that are around you. We'll start reading in verse 13. Again, we're just going to kind of note some things as we go along. 885, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Read with me if you would. That very day, so Jesus has been resurrected. Okay, this has already happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So just real quick here, this is one of the things that just absolutely tip, just tap dances all over the ridiculous idea that's called the swoon theory that Jesus just passed out and they put him in the tomb and then he woke up and got out. One, to believe that, you've got to believe that professional executioners got it wrong. They didn't realize he was dead. Secondly, you've got to believe that a man who hung on a cross and had been beaten to a bloody pulp and had nails driven through his hands and through his feet somehow was able to move over a three-ton stone and spikes driven through his feet is now walking seven miles to Emmaus. That's ridiculous. It's harder to believe that than to believe the truth. You try to walk with a stubbed toe, that spikes through your feet seven miles. While they were work, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So you walk. But their eyes were kept from recognizing. Notice there seems to be something special is going on here. Their, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, hey, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. Like they stopped in their tracks and looked sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus just totally messing with him says, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is not the fulfillment of a couple of select verses from the Old Testament. I'll take this one from Kings and this one from Isaiah, grab one from Malachi. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The whole thing is about him. The whole thing is fulfilled in him. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. 
And he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So that's a little bit different. So you've got all this physical, and then that's a little different right there. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. So poof, boom, he appeared again. That's a little bit different. I don't do that. I don't know about you, but that's not how it works for me. So that's a little bit different. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. Uh huh. Of course. And they thought they saw a spirit. And so he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Physical body. With a few upgrades. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, as the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so we see here in Jesus' resurrected, glorified body, like physical elements. He's flesh and blood. He's eating fish, all right? But he's got these upgrades. He's got some things that he can do now in a glorified body that he could not do prior to and that we cannot do. But there are some upgrades that happen in a physical glorified body. And we need to be careful of like trying to guess what those may be. But over in 1 Corinthians 5 or 15, it does tell us a little bit more. So flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is on page 961 in the Bibles around you. First half of 1 Corinthians 15 is about Jesus' resurrection. John covered that last week. The second half is about our resurrection. Future resurrection. Glorified bodies. And so look at verse 20. Page 961, 1 Corinthians 15. 961, starting in verse 20. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so in his resurrection, make sure you understand, Jesus defeated death. He defeated sin, but they have not been destroyed yet. Okay, they will be. They will be gone. They will become extinct. They will not exist anymore. It is a done deal. It has been won, but it has not been implemented yet. That happens when Jesus returns. Until then, the penalty of sin and death has been removed, but the presence of sin and death is still very much here until he comes again. And then it's over. Skip down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So here we go. This is what we want to know. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. All right. Like a corn is the basis of something, but there's going to be something new out of it as well. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Again, talking about total redemption, not just humans, but the earth, the universe. Verse 42, though, what are these bodies going to be like? So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So there's one. We'll come back. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There's another. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's another. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's what we will be like. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So all this future stuff, all this is coming, it's going to happen. And so four like big describers that he gives us. Let's go pretty quick on these. One, imperishable. Verse 42, he says, our bodies will be imperishable. All right. We won't grow old. So like I'm not an old man. 
contrary to what my kids say. But I am not an old man. I'm 38 years old. There are things though that don't work well anymore. My knees don't work like they used to. I wake up in the morning and everything cracks and creaks. And people who are older than me be like, just wait, you are ridiculous for even saying that. But I'm just starting to something, like we grow old, things change. But we will be imperishable. There will be no growing old. There will be no sickness. There will be no disease. There will be no aching. There will be no creaking. And one that I wrestle with, what will Eden be like? Because perfect body, glorified by Eden, if you don't know, it's my fourth child, she has Down syndrome. She won't have Down syndrome. That's going to be weird and amazing at the same time, like freed from anything that isn't, uh, she's going to be perfected. I'm going to be perfected. All my kids, my wife. There'll be no cancer. There'll be no AIDS. There'll be no Alzheimer's. And anything that these diseases have taken and, and ripped from you and ripped from your loved ones, it's undone. This is amazing. We won't age anymore. So people want to say, well, then how old will we be? Well, then we'll be fully mature adults, I think. But the Bible doesn't tell us. If I was going to guess, I would guess some age is like fully mature adult. With no age of signing. No, no, no sign of aging. So you can get, you can figure out what that you think that is for yourself. It also says in verse 43 that they'll be raised glorious. Right? This is contrasted with dishonor. And so it's restored to God's given image-bearing roles. We'll be doing what He wants us to be and be being the people He wants us to be. And it says, verse 43, that we'll be raised in power, again, in contrast to weakness. And so not only will we not have these diseases and these infirmities and sicknesses, but we'll also have some sort of power that God designed us to have. This does not mean that you're going to be Superman or Captain America and can fly around or grab Thor's hammer and fly around. That does not mean any of that. It just means we're going to have the power to do what God created us to do. Much more so than we do now. Because we are sinful now. We won't be then. Verse 44 says it'll be a spiritual body. This does not mean non-physical, but rather consistent with the character and activity of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1, verse 11. And then one that's not asked here, but everybody wants to know, what about will we recognize people? Will we recognize people in heaven? Of course we will. Absolutely we will. It'll be the ultimate community group of knowing and being known. You know everybody, and everybody will know you. Even to ask that question, I think, shows how we shrink heaven down to even wonder about that. Jesus was recognized. Emmaus Road, they saw Him. They recognized Him. At first, they didn't. Why? Well, He was 33 years old. He lived in a hot climate. He had been a carpenter all his life. He probably had some effects of the sun. Now He has this fully... uh, restored, resurrected, glorified body with some upgrades. He probably looked a little bit different. Most people think Jesus was probably about 5'3". Now he may be like 6'4 and ripped. I mean, this is going to be some sort of... Like, it's a glorified body. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm speculating. Let's make sure we understand what the Bible says and what is speculation. But yeah, we're going to know people 
Jesus says that people are going to dine with him at the table and Abraham will be there and Isaac and Jacob. Like you're going to know who these people are. So, yes, we're going to recognize people. And while the Bible says that there won't be marrying or giving in marriage in heaven, that doesn't mean that you won't know who your spouse was. Or even the example when they're trying to trip Jesus up and this lady's been married to seven people. It doesn't mean that they won't know who she is. You won't know. It doesn't mean you won't know who your kids are, who your parents are. It doesn't mean that at all. Scripture's not clear on this, but with as big of an emphasis as the Bible seems to put on family, I don't think that's just going to be eradicated. But again, that's speculation. We're, we're moving over into this area here. David, we do know this. David says of his son who's born and dies just a couple of days later, says, I will see you again. Indicating he will know, not only see him, he will know who he is. And so for those of you who have lost a child in miscarriage or stillborn, you will see that baby again. You will see that child again. And you'll praise Jesus. They're there in his arms. And those who've lost loved ones who were older and, and who were truly born again believers, you will see them again. And when Jesus does come again in full consummation of everything, then my papa will have his perfect legs. What about the earth? The earth is not going to be destroyed and a new one created, but it's going to be renewed. In Romans chapter 8, Victoria read a little bit of this. I'll read a few verses just to get your mind back on it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, alright, because sin came into the world, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so again, God is all about this total redemption. He's showing His far-sweeping redemptive power to the praise of His glorious grace. Russell Moore puts it like this, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth, and declared it good. God does not surrender this good creation to Satan, but wins it back through the blood of Jesus and restores and recreates a world that vindicates His original creation purposes. This means not just a heavenly city of refuge for flown away souls, but an entire universe of rocks and trees and quasars and waterfalls, everything created in which he takes delight. And this extends even to animals. I, Isaiah 65 talks about how there's a restoration of the original harmony of the animal order. What about time? What are we going to be doing? Floating on clouds, singing in choirs. Well, there'll be singing, there'll be worship, but we'll finally understand that everything when done for God is worship, not just singing. And we'll enter into our Sabbath rest, Hebrews 4.9. Rest from our enemies, rest from worry, from stress, from fear, from boredom. 
And this brings praise to God. But it's not like rest, like an eternal vacation, because we're going to work. Yes, there will be work in heaven. But it's heaven. So it's awesome work. It's not, it's, it's enjoyable. We're going to work. It's going to be great. As you think about work, work was given pre-fall. Genesis 1.26, we're given a job to do, to make culture, to have dominion. So work is a good thing. It's not, it's been cursed by the fall and now it's drudgery in a lot of ways for many of us. But this will be glorious work. And the earth will be restored, but it'll be even more than just Eden because there's going to be this new city coming down. We see Revelation 21.11. You can read about that yourself. But with as much color and art that that thing's described with, I can only expect that part of our work in heaven is going to include culture building and art and music and painting and literature all done to the glory of God. So the earth is renewed, we'll have dominion, we will continue in technology and agriculture and everything that expresses the creativity of human beings that God created us to do, but now there's no sin, there's no greed, there's no jealousy, there's no strife with it. And to show that God can redeem all things, there will actually be politics in heaven. He can redeem all things, that's like unbelievable. How do I know that? Because there will be a monarchy. There will be a king, right? And he's the king. And he says that his believers will have charge of helping him in some way, shape, or form. This is what he means when he talks about crowns in heaven. These aren't like tiaras that you put on, oh, got my attaboy from Jesus. These are signs of like authority and glory, all based off of what you did here. And so use this life. You only get one shot at this life. The eternal state is coming, but it is affected by what you do here. And so what are you doing here? One of my favorite movies of all time is Gladiator, Russell Crowe. And at the very beginning, he makes a statement that is far more true than the scriptwriter ever realized. He says, what we do today echoes in eternity. What are you doing today that is going to echo for eternity? Because there's coming a day very soon in God's scheme of things when the craziness of this world will be interrupted by a shout from the eastern sky a joyful call with a distinctly northern Galilean drawl. And that's when life gets really fun. Because heaven is not a timeless beatific vision or an endless choir practice, but neither is it merely a family reunion in which we see that the circle actually was unbroken. Heaven means Jesus. And by extension, those who are in Him receive finally Their promised inheritance. Everything. Because we get God. Forever. In perfect harmony. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. That is our hope. When you come and make right all that's broken in this world, 
And sin is no more, and death is no more, and disease is no more, and disability is no more. Pain is no more, and suffering is no more, and injustice is no more. And war, and greed, and strife, and lying is no more. And we praise You that You have defeated these things. That it is a done deal. And we look forward to the day that these things are not just defeated, they are extinct. And so fill us now with hope, even as we talk about and remember the basis of our hope. Your sacrifice on the cross for our sins and our redemption. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So what we have this morning, we will we're going to be remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. But in a lot of ways, the Lord's Supper is an eschatological hors d'oeuvre. Alright? It is an appetizer for heaven. When we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb gathered in heaven with all the believers of all time with Christ. This is an appetizer. It's a reminder of that. It's a remembrance of what Christ has done and it's a pointer to His coming again. Because it says in the Scriptures that we, as we take this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And then we have the fullness of what this points to. So if you are a, if you are not a member of Providence, uh, but you are a believer in Jesus, a member of a church in, of another church in good standing, then you're welcome to partake of this with us. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. And we pray that you ask that you would just kind of watch us in what we're doing and let, just let the elements go by you. This is a sacred, this is an ordinance of the church. Um, so just let them pass by you. Um, and just kind of watch us as we repent of our sin, mourn and grieve it, but then are reminded of the redemption we have in Christ and the promise of His return. And we rejoice in those things. And so let me pray for us and then these men will distribute these elements to you. Father, Thank you for sending Christ. Jesus, thank you for knowingly, willingly going to the cross for my sin. Knowing all the ways I would betray you and belittle you and mock you and ignore you. And he went. And he paid for my sin. Hammer this reality home in the hearts and minds of everyone here. And then remind us that you defeated sin and death. And that in you we are made new. And there is no more condemnation. We are yours. And you love us. And you'll take us home. We're asking in Christ's name. Amen.